Previously on the British Broadcasting Century podcast. The BBC is seven weeks in and six employees strong. Two of that six, Arthur Burroughs and Cecil Lewis, nightly hot-footed from their day job at Magnet House, BBC HQ, to their evening roles at Marconi House, from office to studio. Fueled by beer and meringues, they transform as they go from director of programmes and deputy to Uncle Arthur and Uncle Caractacus for the 2-0 Children's Hour, changing into their new guises like Batman and Robin racing through the London streets in an Only Fools and Horses Christmas special. Whatever that is. I'm a voice from 1923, you see. Well, this time, what would Uncle Arthur and Uncle Caractacus find when they got to the 2LO studio? Yes, it's a mic drop moment. A change of microphone. We've reached the point in the BBC story when it's time to say out with the old and in with the new. The BBC leave their telephonic radio ham roots behind and embrace a new era. And is there any need to label it as 2LO anymore? Not now they're BBC. We, of course, on this podcast are not the BBC. The present-day British Broadcasting Corporation is nothing to do with us. This is your unofficial, non-BBC-funded solo enterprise guide to the earliest days of wireless. In particular, this time, January 3rd and January the 4th, 1923. Yes, we tell you this tale the slow way, because there is just so much to tell. Plus, our special guest is radio fanatic Jim Salmon with his plans for the centenary of pre-BBC broadcasting. Yes, 2MT Rittle celebrates the centenary as well. Lots to pack in then. Bring on the pips. It's the British Broadcasting Century. Hello, hello. This is Paul Carenza calling. This is London Calling. Hello, hello, PK Calling, PK Calling. Uh, But this episode is the one where we drop the call sign. Yes, those primitive days of early radio has that transition. As you will have heard if you've joined us for the previous 40-plus episodes, you will have heard the BBC in a wireless telephony, radio ham kind of day. Experimental broadcasts ultimately becoming professional radio. What did Hemingway say? Change happens gradually and then suddenly. That change is partly about its new technology and partly about uh, what we would now call imaging, I suppose. Once again, it's art and science. Before we crack on with ye oldie BBC of January 1923, Jim Salmon, radio ham, radio nut, fanatic, whatever you want to call him, he's marking the 100th birthday of 2MT Rittle, Britain's first regular broadcast station, February the 14th, 2022 will be that 100th birthday. Now, that's incredibly soon, isn't it? In fact, it's likely that you're listening to this after Jim has celebrated that moment. So you can head to his website, the amazing emmatoc.org. That's E-M-M-A-T-O-C dot O-R-G. Find what Jim Salmon and co have been doing there, celebrating Radio Emmatoc 2MT Rittle. Yeah, he's even reclaimed that name of that long lost radio station. Here's Jim. I try to work out what interested me about the 2MT story. I mean, the actual, the thing that first got me interested in 2MT was that because I'm a radio ham, uh, 2E0RMI, call signs. Uh, (laughs) I think we might come on to that. We might come on to that, definitely. (laughs) Um, So as a radio ham and a member of the Chelmsford Amateur Radio Society, uh, we used to transmit from this, this funny old wooden hut, which was in our Sandford Mill Industrial Museum here in Chelmsford. And I didn't really know the history of it. Then I picked up a leaflet there one day, started reading about it, and uh, thought, "Oh, okay. What was this? What was this funny little station that was originally in this hut? And why is this hut in this massive great building?" So uh, started learning more about that. Uh, enjoyed transmitting from the hut, 
I then, I'm not going to say made the mistake of, but I bought one of mm. Tim Wander's books <laughs> about 2MT. Took it on holiday with me. And I didn't see much of the beach that, that those two weeks because I was reading the book all the time. So I got fascinated and hooked on the story of 2MT. Yeah, so Jim is paying tribute to 2MT Riddle via emmatoc.org. Do head there to see what he's up to, especially if you get this in time. On February the 14th, 2022, you can see the live stream celebrations that Jim is putting on uh, for the pre-BBC British Broadcasting Station, 2MT Riddle. Or you can check his website, emmatoc.org, after the event to see the sort of things that he's up to there. He's even now putting out longwave radio into the world. As for that pioneer of 2MT Riddle, Peter Eckersley, in our timeline on this podcast that we're gradually telling you, Eckersley at this point is still on the last few shows in 2MT. It's still going on, but the writing's on the wall. That hut in that muddy Essex field is the only awkward competitor to the BBC on the airwaves in early 1923. They were clinging on for now. If this is unfamiliar to you, you're not quite sure who I'm talking about, episodes eight and nine of this podcast will tell you the Peter Eckersley 2MT Riddle story. They started British broadcasting on a regular basis. The BBC then came and, and ran with it in late 1922. But the BBC were doing the serious thing. Eckersley was doing the silly thing. He still took aim at the BBC, especially at the man with the golden voice, programme director Arthur Burroughs. His journalistic training dramatised the least incident. Now, this is from Eckersley's 1941 uh, immodestly titled memoir, The Power Behind the Microphone. Here talking about Arthur Burroughs at BBC HQ. Memory shows me his earnest concern over a letter from a parson in Norfolk who thought he had heard someone say, damn, into the microphone. It might have been Cecil Lewis who said it, and who would not have cared a damn if he had. Lewis would have appreciated the mistake and got on with the work. He had a warm sympathy with the aesthetic side of life and with Burroughs completed a strangely assorted pair. So yes, Eckersley was listening in at this point to the BBC as a listener. Of course, ultimately, Eckersley will join the BBC as chief engineer. That's in a few episodes time. Another example from January 1923. We know that Arthur Burroughs sent a memo to Stanton Jeffries at Marconi House complaining of vulgarity by a humorist. Yes, it must be stopped. Arthur Burroughs was becoming quite the celebrity at this point. He was nicknamed 2LO's Hello Man. I should like to say that we are making a special point of ensuring that nothing should be broadcasted which is in any way unsuitable for the minds of the children who form a large percentage of our audiences. We leave it to parents, of course, to decide as to the advisability of allowing their children to listen in to the news bulletins. Ah yes, straight-laced Arthur Burroughs and his critical rival Peter Eckersley. Don't forget, I'm playing both of these men in my new touring one-man play. It's called The First Broadcast. We're off and rolling now. I've had a couple of performances, and thank you if you came. It features me, Paul, as Arthur Burroughs, and Peter Eckersley. These two names that appear quite a lot in this episode alone. Do come and see the show on tour. The First Broadcast is having new dates added all the time. So, at time of recording, next performance is Banbury in March the 3rd, then Barnes, Central London, Bristol, Chandler's Ford, Blandford Forum, Bath, Kettering, Guildford. Tickets and details at paulcarenza.com slash tour. Do come, or book it in for your place, why not indeed? Oh, and Chelmsford is TBC. Uh, it's short for to be confirmed, not uh, Trittish Broadcasting Company. That would be strange. So anyway, that's Eckersley versus Burroughs rumbling on into 1923. But meanwhile, in London, we spent the last few episodes in Magnet House, but a short 15-minute walk away 
is the studio Marconi House. It had another four months in it before Magnet House and Marconi House combine into Savoy Hill Studio and office in one BBC. With no space in the one room at Magnet House, the Marconi House Studio was used as an office by day by station director Stanton Jeffries, then Rex Palmer, his successor. They were, of course, on-air talent as well. But office or studio, the technical tinkering was happening around them, whatever they were doing, as Rex Palmer recalled. During the daytime hours, some of us, Stanton Jeffries for one, I remember, used the Tuello studio as an office. Or we tried to, while the engineers carried on with their experiments. Ah, the Tuello studio, innovation happening around their very feet. Now, these new microphones then were, of course, aimed to improve the quality of the broadcasts. The focus till now had been on the transmitter. Now, that was up and running. The engineers, under Captain Round's guidance, were switching their attention to newer, better microphones. So, till this point, London 2LO had been using rather dodgy microphones, Peel, Connor, Carbon Granule types. They're like the ones you get in telephone mouthpieces, only with a big horn that you shouted into. You know, Nellie Melba used one in June 1920. A Marconi C100L microphone, I'm sure you knew that. Peter Eckersley had a microphone like this in 2MT and Rittle. And right up to two weeks before, even the brand new Newcastle 5NO station was having Peel Connor microphones fitted too. But they weren't very good. They had limitations. They were tolerable for voice. A bit of a hiss though. Arthur Burroughs said that the early microphones worked best after a good shaking, like a bottle of medicine, and responded best when shouted at. Unreliable for music, couldn't pick up the full range of notes if you stuck a microphone in the piano. They had six of these microphones dotted around the 2LO studio, and it did put off some performers knowing their perfect voices would be imperfectly carried through the ether. The publicity value of these performances would not be so great after all. But the deal was that the Marconi company would essentially build brand new studios around the country, maybe even around the world, but in 2LO's image. So the 2LO was essentially the model, and they were let down by these microphones. So they got their smartest engineer to create a brand new microphone. Enter Captain H.J. Round and his moving coil microphone. Ironically, given we're talking about microphones, We've had a little microphone trouble ourselves this episode, so thanks for bearing with us. We need Captain Round to come and help us out. Here's early engineer, later chief engineer, Harold Bishop, not the one from Neighbours. We had this transmitter up on the seventh floor, and I remember very well the microphone experiments which were carried out by Captain H.J. Round of the Marconi Company. The microphones in those days were very poor, and very uh, inadequate for our purpose. And Round's purpose was to find something which was much more sensitive. Vanquishing the Peel Connor, the new round coil microphones were electrodynamic. Sounds good, doesn't it? Well, sounding good was the idea. So they're more sensitive, based on a similar idea to the telephone earpiece rather than the telephone mouthpiece. To get the best of it, Captain Round would use four of these microphones in parallel, plus various stages of preamplifier that, to be honest, I don't fully understand. I'm not an engineer. Essentially, this would increase the gain. It did make for a much heavier box. This is all one giant microphone that really wasn't that practical at all in terms of lumbering it around, but it would do to get broadcasting off the ground. Now, literally off the ground, it was placed on a sturdy tripod or maybe hung from the ceiling, wouldn't stand underneath it unless you're wearing a tin hat. It was rather heavy. Less hiss than the Peel Connor, 
it could pick up more, so you could place it further from the performer. So these microphones, of course, had to be tested. So rigorously throughout November, December 1922, uh, London 200 Studio had Captain Brown there tinkering away. Lots of volunteers by day saying days of the week, months of the year, playing all of the keys on a piano, as engineer Harold Bishop recalled. I remember playing the piano one finger at a time for hours on end while Captain Round, chief of Marconi Research, tried out new ideas for microphones. At one point, Captain Round went to lunch but forgot to tell the poor piano player who was testing it all out and still doing scales when Round got back after his sandwiches, thinking the mic was undergoing a very long test. One lesson learned was if you had the performer at a distance, which you could have with this new round moving coil mic, their sound actually bounces off the walls and the floor and the ceiling a little more. That meant, of course, you need new wall and ceiling lining. So we still have that in studios today. People setting up their home studios during lockdown and putting foam around the room or mattresses against the wall, which I know BBC's Ros Atkins did. I did read that interview recently. So when they moved to the new Savoy Hill Studios, lined walls were built into the plans. These new microphones needed more space because they were quite cumbersome. The microphone and tripod itself was eight foot long, four and a half foot high, two foot deep. So these were wheeled in to Marconi House in January 1923. The round microphone only lasted a few months in this form. By May, he developed it into a new microphone, the Marconi Sykes magnetophone held in a box that looked like a meat safe. Heavy, but excellent in quality, said Tuolo boss Stanton Jeffries. The box uh, sort of rested on this tripod trolley, often wasn't fixed to it, so it did have a precarious habit of just sliding off onto the floor. Jeffries continued, The trolley also took it into its head to take a stroll on its own at the slightest touch. It was a valve box, but we christened it the soap box, and soap box it was. Or as I see it, almost a Dalek, I think. It was a tripod with wheels, that occasionally, annoyingly, squeaked. Now, the box that held the microphone also had a knack of trapping the odd blue bottle, not the Peter Sellers goon character, but the annoying buzzing flies who would get into the microphone, but not out. Cecil Lewis, the deputy programme director, referred to it as a sort of iron jam jar lying on its side and a sling of sawbow rubber. Captain Round produced it and announced, to our astonishment, that it was a new microphone and would pick up anything in the room. That day was the first step forward and released us from the telephone operator's technique, which glued us to a microphone. Ah, yes, the telephone operator's technique. You see, broadcasting was moving away then from its telephonic origins, and that included just this smidge of a move away from call signs. I'll tell you more on that in a moment, but firstly, speaking of call signs, we will shift from 2LO in London to 2MT over in Essex and meet our guest this week, Jim Salmon. Now, as I said, 2MT and Riddle was still just about on air in January 1923. But for now, Jim is focused on the start of 2MT, February the 14th, 1922. He set up a whole website many years ago now that is a tribute to 2MT in Riddle. And here he is to tell us more about it and why he zoomed in on the 2MT story. I mean, anyone can now do a radio station. I can go online now. Within two minutes, I can be running a, a radio station with the potential for anyone across the world to listen to it. Uh, but it wasn't quite so easy back then. Uh, certainly with the offshore stations, they had to go offshore into international waters to, uh, to be able to transmit. But then with 2MT, uh, there were some similarities. There was a, a band of people in this, in this outpost because they were in the hut in this field. And at that time, there was virtually nothing else in that field. And although they worked for a massive company, the Marconi company, I think they were 
they were certainly irreverent and they were probably allowed to get on with perhaps someone in the Marconi company recognized their genius and um, and let them get on with it, knowing that they would come up with the goods, but they'd have to do it their way. There are some similarities to uh, MT. I don't know if you've ever been to Bletchley Park. Um, no, no, I haven't. That would be a marvellous thing. To you me. have to go. Yeah, and yeah, and I'll tell you what will strike you is that it, the site is full of huts, wooden huts. Mm. And um, there's something about the mentality of working in like an outpost and a small group of people. And it, it's it's quite creative, I think. And I think there's a part of that working with 2MT. I mean, they were all marvellous people. They were all incredibly clever people. But there was also, there was, a, there was something extra to it. And, and that, so reading about 2MT and hearing those recreations that Peter Eckersley did afterwards of, of what it sounded like, uh, it, quite appealing. So, so that's what got me hooked. So, so tell us then about what you're doing nowadays then with uh, Radio Matok and indeed uh, the centenary. What, what plans have you got coming up? I'm, I've got interested in video streaming. So I thought what I'll do is put a, a, a stream broadcast on on the 14th of February, which will be the 100th anniversary of 2MT. Uh, ideally, I would have loved to have been sat in the hut with a, with a massive great party going on. We sort of did that five years ago in 2017. We celebrated the 95th anniversary of 2MT as a, a practice run for the 100th, but it hasn't really quite worked out as we hoped. <laughs> we didn't foresee this. Yeah. Um, so I thought, well, I can't recreate what we did five years ago. And, and, and dear old Tim was with us for the whole time there. And, and, we, and we got onto BBC Radio 5 Live and local BBC Essex, and we got some good publicity for that. So that was excellent. But I don't think we can recreate that. So uh, I know Tim is doing some things with um, uh, BBC Essex, hopefully. And, and I thought what I'd do is put on a stream broadcast, uh, maybe slightly different angle on, on, on the centenary. Uh, there won't be a history lesson about 2MT. Uh, I have put together six or seven hours of videos and audio, which will be playing throughout the day. But then what I hope to do is at about half past six, quarter to seven in the evening, I'll come on and do a live stream. And uh, it'll be from from my own sort of uh, studio shack at home and really just ask people to join me and we'll drink a worldwide toast to 2MT. So join me with a with a glass of something, uh, G&Ts and have a fish and chip supper, maybe <laughs> you <laughs> yes. understand the relevance of that. Paul. <laughs> Those who've listened, the listeners who, who go way back to the start of the podcast will remember the uh, the 2MT story. Uh, and uh, and if not, I suggest they head back to those episodes and indeed uh, join you on the 14th. Definitely. So how do they find you on the 14th? What's the plan? Where do they head to? Uh, well, the best thing would be to go on Twitter or Facebook. And, and if you just type in the search box, Radio Emma Talk, and uh, so Radio then E-M-M-A-T-O-C, and that will take you to my Twitter or Facebook pages, or uh, you can go direct to my website, which is emmatalk.com. So E-M-M-A-T-O-C.com. Celebrating the 100th birthday of 2MT Rittle, Britain's first regular broadcasting station, February the 14th, 2022. If you are listening to this later on, which is much more likely, you can go to his website and you can watch or listen back to the many things he's got going on to celebrate this centenary. Uh, on the day itself, if you're quick, then 11am GMT. Uh, he's got lots of preloaded documentaries on Marconi. Uh, he's got Tim Wonder's radio plays on old radio. An episode 
or two of the British Broadcasting Century. We've loaned him as well. He's also got videos, including a tour around the Rittle Hut. Uh, there's a video from me. Uh, there's some old BBC stuff as well. Uh, from 6.45, though, on the day, Jim is going live from his radio shack, and he would love emails from you so you can get involved in the show live. emmatoc.org slash 2MT celebration for details. Link in the show notes. Bring your own G&T to toast. Now, of course, that's all online, but elsewhere, in person, there are further celebrations of 2MT Riddle in Riddle. Now, this goes not just in February, but later on into 2022 as well. So if you can get to the Essex area, I've been in touch with a chap called Adrian Deeks. He is heading up the local plans there. Here's what they've got planned. If you fancy a trip, actually, to the birthplace of radio. So most immediately in February, on February the 11th, they've got a community event and a jazz band and the local school are getting involved, a 1920s theme. February the 14th, you've got the Chelmsford Amateur Radio Society setting up a special event station in the Village Hall, which is very close to the Lawford Lane site of the original broadcast of 2MT Riddle. Now in the middle of May, they are doing lots of events. May 17th, you can hear a good friend of the show, Tim Wonder, giving a lecture at Riddle University College. That's Tuesday, May 17th, and the talk is on the centenary of British broadcasting. Uh, Saturday, 21st of May, you've got Dave Monk from BBC Essex opening a weekend of celebrations at the Christian Centre in Rittle, an exhibition on the Marconi Hut. The Village Hall will be open. Uh, the Rittle Green will be having an event, including a Marconi van. There's a Rittle Wireless Walk as well, which is about a 90-minute tour around the village, highlighting the many connections to the early days of wireless broadcasting and the Marconi company. We'll put all of these links in the show notes as ever. So even if you miss February, maybe you can make May in person in Rittle, in Essex, in England, in Europe. Well, technically in Europe, geographically, if not politically. Oh, that drifted. But that's enough for now of 2MT. Let's drift west then to London and 2LO. Now, occasionally on this podcast, we do go super geeky deep and tell you exactly what was on. So how about a little rundown of what you could find on January the 3rd, 1923? Here's what's on the BBC tonight. After the children's hour at 5pm, the 2LO Orchestra from 6.30 to 7, they play the Liberator's March and a bit of Schubert. After the news at 7, probably with Arthur Burroughs, he normally does it round about now, more orchestral music, Delibes La Surée, uh, Squire's Melodie Caprice, Svendine's Norwegian Rhapsody, it's like the Bohemian one but few electric guitars, and then Entertainer Middleton Woods with a character sketch. Dance music, uh, that's Foxtrots, not Judge Jules or DJ Silly Boy's Serious Jockin' Noji. Baritone Topless Green from Nine with a bit of Coleridge Taylor. Soprano Annette Blackwell with some Vaughan Williams. The orchestra again after the late news, before Middleton Woods returns with more humour in The Bantam Brigadier by Birmingham dialectic musical writer Graham Squires. A lot of detail for you there, but in case anyone particularly wants to know exactly what was on, that was it. Middleton Woods, the entertainer I mentioned there, would perform that exact same piece again on the Newcastle station a couple of years later, August 14th, 1925. Yeah, so performers were starting to have the habit of touring provincial stations. So skipping ahead to 1925, on that evening, Middleton Woods is on Newcastle 5NO. At that exact same evening, some of our old favourites are appearing too, if you followed the podcast 
from the beginning. Helena Millay is on the Glasgow station that August 14th, 1925. John Henry, the comedian, is on the Cardiff station that evening. Morris Cole, the pianist, is on the London station all that evening of August 14th, 1925. They would tour around, so each different guest is on a different provincial station. Anyway, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Back in early 1923, all this was just getting going, as was John Reith, the boss. Immediately involved in an almost overwhelming intensity and complexity of activity, confronted with problems of which I had no experience, copyright and performing rights, Marconi patents, associations of concert artists, authors, playwrights, composers... All of this brings us to Reith's first board meeting of the BBC on January the 4th, 1923. The BBC was in the hands of the wireless trade, but they had never dominated the policy decisions or anything of that sort. Previously, Sir William Noble had reassured Reith, Oh no, we're leaving it all to you. You'll be reporting at our monthly meetings and we'll see how you're getting on. They had left me virtually full freedom of management and allowed me to manage the BBC in the interests of broadcasting and of the country. And on this day, January the 4th, was the first of those BBC board meetings. It began at 10.30am. John Reith met with Lord Gainford for the first time. He's the chairman of the board. All the directors were members of the wireless trade. And only the chairman, Lord Gainford, you see, was independent. Reith told Gainford that he had schooled with his son. Very decent person, Reith thought. Lord Gainford told Reith he should consider himself a board member although he wasn't, and he should attend every time. Reith found that he was left to do most of the talking, even though a week before he claimed to know nothing of what broadcasting actually was. So Reith, the non-board member, read a long report at this meeting that he'd prepared about the BBC at this point. Of course I had a good many problems to decide, the chief being for whose benefit and how to get the greatest benefit, but that's another matter altogether. Swiftly, they got to the point of the experimental licence problem. If you go back to episode 32, you can hear a bit more on this. Essentially, the public were being asked to buy licences, even though the BBC's own licence hadn't actually come through at this point for another two weeks, but whatever. So many people were listening as experimenters. The BBC weren't getting the income they had hoped for. So this broadcasting may not be sustainable without much money coming in. So after this board meeting, John Reith and Sir William Noble, they head to the GPO, the post office, to meet F.J. Brown. He's the GPO's radio expert. He'd been to America to see how the Americans run broadcasting. There's no easy answer to this license problem, as we're still discovering a century later. But they decided back then a committee should be formed. Then they appointed a committee, which is always the way to get out of a difficulty. Yes, thank you, Peter Eckersley. Sometimes you need a committee, though. This committee would discuss plans with the GPO on how to move forward with this experimental licence problem. We'll update you as this podcast goes along with how they solve that one. But, spoilers, a government inquiry is launched. The Sykes Inquiry. This committee to look into the licence problem is made up of John Reith from the Board of Directors, uh, Sir William Noble, the Marconi boss Godfrey Isaacs, and Basil Binion from the RCC, the Radio Communication Company. And Basil Binion sounded like this. Any member of the public who had a receiving set had to pay a licence fee of 10 shillings a year. Basil Binion actually worked with Marconi himself at the very start of the century on the first transatlantic Morse code radio transmissions from Poldhu in Cornwall to Newfoundland across the Atlantic. From the very first, our chief executive saw broadcasting as a public service with far wider vistas and obligations than those of entertainment alone. 
All the directors were in agreement with this policy and we gave Mr Reith our full support. Yes, and they were impressed. Reith's management style was later described as benevolent paternalism tempered with assassination. He knew what he wanted. He led from the front. The scar, the six-foot-seven height, the dour Scottish Presbyterian approach to God's world all added up to a commanding presence. Now, there's another board member I want to mention at this stage, an American, the Western Electric MD, Henry Peace. Now, it's around now that Peace said to Reith, Why don't you drop all that rigmarole about 2LO? Why not just say London Calling? Apologies for the accent. It must be terrible for them. Now, Reith didn't hang about. He went across to the telephone. He instantly gave Burroughs a phone call, an immediate order to implement this across the schedule. No longer 2LO calling. This is 2LO. This is 2LO calling. 2LO calling. Now they were escaping the call sign. London calling. This is London calling. They didn't ask permission from the post office. They just did it. Sometimes it's easier that way. Sometimes we said... This is 2LO, and sometimes this is London. Here's future chief engineer of the BBC, Sir Noel Ashbridge. Sometimes the announcer felt justified in expressing the hope that some of his listeners were able to hear him at all. Sir Noel would actually follow Peter Eckersley as chief engineer, and at this point in our timeline, he's finishing up a 2MT in Riddle, not thinking of joining the BBC. Those were the days of easy, unstudied announcements. And sure enough, a couple of days later, January 6th listing in the Pall Mall Gazette no longer refers to it as 2LO, just the London Broadcasting Station. Now, future chief engineer Peter Eckersley thought that this was the natural progression of broadcasting, being dragged away from its telephonic roots. He wrote, When broadcasting began, the methods of announcing and the studio routine were derived from, if not identical with, a code of formal procedure laid down for operators using wireless telephone communication. The constant hellos, the repetition of the station call sign, the obvious itemisation of programmes were designed so it seemed more to illustrate the wonders of wireless than to do broadcasting justice. It made the listener think more about the technical means by which he heard the programmes than the programmes themselves. I think he had a point. Another way that it was moving on was those government-mandated intervals. Here's Uncle Caractacus, a.k.a. Cecil Lewis. Every seven minutes, we had to close down for three minutes, in case we were interfering with the government services. You'll recall, maybe, that in December we'd seen the last of those infernal three-minute intervals. No, instead, a new rule had come in for a while, five minutes off in every hour, again, ostensibly to leave some radio silence in case needed. In practice, though, it had been quite useful for five minutes of silence to shuttle instruments and performers in and out of the studios. We had a habit of holding up the programmes to move pianos and microphones about. But even that five minutes in the hour interval, that was dropped by this day too. If broadcasting was going to give us concerts, you couldn't have five minutes of silence out of every 60. And they already had 18 hours of silence out of every 24 hours at this point. So you have new microphones, no intervals, the call sign less frequent. Broadcasting was all becoming a little more professional. But all of this call sign talk begs a question we had emailed to us from Matt Lacey. Hello, Matt. Or should I say, hello, hello, Matt. This is PK calling. Matt asks us, what's with the names of the early stations? Why a number and then two letters? Well, good question, Matt. Let's begin by posing this question to our guest, Radio Ham, Jim Salmon. Yes, Ham and Salmon. What a meal. Matt asks, what's with the names of the early stations, 2MT, 2LO and so on? What do they mean? What do they stand for? Any clues? Well, my understanding as a radio ham, 
as a as a current day radio ham, I have a call sign. Uh, my call sign now is two e zero RMI. Um, so there's a two again there, isn't there? But back in the day in the 1920s, there were lots of radio hams uh, transmitting prior to two MT, and they all were allocated a license by the um, by the authorities then, all part of the Postmaster General's uh, remit, I guess, to uh, look after licensing. I also asked Matt Lacey's call sign question to our favourite Marconi historian, Tim Wonder. He pointed me to a chapter in his book, 2MT Your Riddle. So I'll paraphrase. You can read the full account in Tim's book. Essentially, the call signs stem from the Wireless Telegraph Act of 1904, even though not many were communicating back then. The origins come from uh, wired communications. So the earliest call signs were spelt in Morse, and so for brevity's sake, that meant the letter number thing. It was generally based on location. Uh, so Luxembourg had one. Great Britain had two, hence 2MT Rittle, 2LO. France, I think it was eight, and Germany was four. And then I think Holland was either nothing at all or, or maybe zero. So when you get the Dutch station that they could hear, the Dutch concerts, that was often just letters, I think. They tended to, most of them at the time, started with the number two. But sometimes the, the letters mean something. So... Uh, 2LO, uh, which was station after 2MT, LO for London. 2MT, we think, was probably Marconi Telegraph. The earliest station in New Street in Chelmsford was MZX. And again, no number there. All the call signs were reset in 1920 after the war. So the first 2AA was issued to the radio communication company's Slough Experimental Station. 2AB went to Captain Horace Donisthorpe, who we've mentioned before for his war work. So I think it seems a mix of sometimes random letters and sometimes, as you said, like the MT makes sense for Marconi uh, Telegraph or um, LO for London. The post office, incidentally, had a call sign of 1LO. But then you've got the puns as well, haven't you? 2LO, LO, you know, it's a bit of that. I know a few of the uh, the writers to the wireless magazines at the time were saying 2MT, well... Eckersley's gin bottles are two empty, you know, and need to be topped up. The number thing doesn't quite work because I think Britain just gained more. I think we gained five and six as well because you get five NO for Newcastle, five SC for Scotland, for Glasgow, five WA for Wales. So those ones clearly have, have some sort of meaning. But I love the fact that it's mixed in then. You've got the radio stations that have those ones. But then equally, you could just have private experimenters, so to speak, which sounds very dodgy, but uh, private yeah, experimenters the, who'd, who'd have... Yeah, the radio hams, yeah. 2LO, London Station, is sandwiched between two private experimenters. 2LN is a bloke in Lancashire. 2LP is Mr A.W. Knight of 20 Stanbury Road, South East London. Yeah, and as I say, the, the, the licensing thing uh, carries on today. Also, I think something you mentioned earlier about the... Um, how sometimes two and two was quite staid in it and formal in the way that um that they spoke on on air. Again, that still in some ways carries through today with with being a radio ham. There's still a formal there's still a formal way of, of putting a call out for someone to to talk to. You know, I would put a call out saying CQ CQ. This is two e zero RMI calling CQ, and you do that on a calling channel to see if anyone's lit hearing you and, and wants to come back and have a chat. So it's still quite a formal way, but that has quite a few advantages. But it was nice that Peter Eckersley, way back in 1922, managed to cut away from the formality, because I think that we couldn't have had broadcasting in that 
tight, restrictive formality uh, for too long. And cheers to 2MT, because by the next episode, we will have been past that centenary. On February the 14th, I'll be raising a glass of gin and tonic with my fish and chips supper to you. So where does that leave us then? I think at a fork in the road in this episode of our podcast, we have the radio hams going one way, keeping the call signs. You have the BBC and broadcasting going the other way. The beeb veers away from call signs and the old microphones. Leaves that to the radio amateurs who've stuck with them for a century as well. But at that fork in the road, in January 1923, 2MT Rittle was stuck in the middle, under Eckersley's leadership. Wasn't quite the realm of radio hams, but it wasn't quite professional broadcasting anymore either, although it had started it. So next time, as 2MT Rittle has to make that choice between going forward and changing or being sadly consigned to the past, next time we will see Arthur Burroughs seize on an idea that sends the BBC even further down the road to broadcasting future. Let's look ahead to the next episode then with one little article that was in the Times newspaper on January the 5th, 1923. In five years' time, if certain expectations are realised, it will be possible for anyone in any part of the country to sit down at his own fireside among the Grampians in Wessex or in the West End of London and listen, it may be, to Question Time at the House of Commons, a speech by the Prime Minister, an act from an opera at Covent Garden, a scene from a new play at one of the theatres, or a concert at the Albert Hall. Technically, it's all a matter of linking up the Houses of Parliament and the other places to the broadcasting station by means of landlines. Yes, so the BBC themselves were laying out these plans. And that talk of an opera from Covent Garden and the landlines from studio to opera house, well, that was all just coming in as well. Next time we'll look at that plan for the first outside broadcast ever. That January 1923 article continued with a statement from the BBC. We want to get at least one big name on the programme every week. Women subjects we shall have discussed by women. And we aim at interesting the owners of motor cars or goats or pigeons or anything else in their own pet subjects. Sounds rather like podcasts, I like to think. Poetry and readings will be a feature. There is no reason why whole acts of certain plays should not be done by leading actors and actresses. For that, you have to wait just another month or two. We want first-class stuff. At present, we are compelled to take second-hand stuff. Our new service, for instance, is disappointing. What we aim at is to have a speech from the Prime Minister, say, on the night he takes office, or a talk by Donoghue on the night he wins the derby. On such occasions, it would be possible to push up the power of the London station and give the speech to the whole country. I do not think it unreasonable to suggest that by 1924, the PM or Archbishop of Canterbury or the representatives of any other party or creed will be able to reach at one time an audience of one million people. One million. Just imagine. That was a dream in 1923 of how it could be in 1924. But here in 2022, I thank you for listening. If you'd like to support the podcast, patreon.com slash Paul Carenza does that. Or just share what we do on Twitter, on Facebook. Find us there at BB Century. I promised our 600th Twitter follower a mention on the podcast that person would be David Henderson, news producer at the BBC, one of the people, in fact, behind tomorrow's papers today, hashtag a great thing indeed. Welcome, David. He's probably not even listening to the podcast, but he clearly followed us on Twitter. Do join us on Twitter at BB Century. Be our next follower. And you can also find us on our Facebook pages and our Facebook group. Look for British Broadcasting Century there. Hello and thank you too to our newest Patreon supporter, Tim Blackmore. Thank you, Tim. And thank you to all who support us on Patreon and keep us in books and web hosting. 
and occasional visits to the BBC Written Archive Centre that we need to pay for because we're not officially BBC. So if you think that we are taking our time on this podcast, if you think we're exploring really niche parts of radio history, blame our Patreon supporters because basically the more people who chip in there, the more research I can afford, the more books I can find, the more I discover and suddenly the episodes grow and grow as I find new little aspects of the story to bring to you. It's a simple equation. The more you guys put in, unfortunately, the more I produce in terms of episodes and things. My thanks to Jim Salmon and do raise a toast on February the 14th, 2022 to MT Riddle, the start of regular British broadcasting. The British Broadcasting Century is presented and produced by me, Paul Carenza. Original music is by Will Farmer. We are nothing to do with the BBC whatsoever. We just love what they've done with the last century or so and wish to talk about how it all started. Archive clips are either public domain, as far as we know due to age, or BBC content is used with kind permission. BBC copyright content reproduced courtesy of the British Broadcasting Corporation. All rights are reserved. And a huge thanks and credit to the BBC Written Archive Centre, its staff of angels, past and present. God bless them all. Uh, stay informed, educated and entertained, and join us next time as we head towards the first outside broadcast in January 1923 on the British Broadcasting Century.